You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, this is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast on your 3CR community radio. And this morning we're going to go to a strike. Well, there was a strike at RMIT, it follows on from what happened at uh, Melbourne University the previous week, uh, as I said uh, in that report, that uh, campuses across Australia are actually alive with uh, grief in regards to uh, in, uh, precarious uh, positions and uh, low pay and uh, generally disregard of the needs of the workers on campus and the students who are paying big bucks to be there. Uh, the only people who seem to be cushy at the moment are the uh, top layer. Uh, they keep p- putting more and more management layers into these places and they've all living in mansions, uh, it would appear. <laughs> it's just uh, doesn't seem to be uh, in the interests of uh, the uh, real reason for why we have universities at all. But we went down to RMIT on Wednesday the 13th uh, to get a voice from the striking uh, workers to find out a little bit about what's going on there, their ongoing dispute. It's been going on for ages, as they said. Uh, uh, the EBA hasn't, hasn't changed since 2018. So uh, talk about management uh, dragging their feet. Um, you would have heard that there was a lot of kerfuffle around um, a uh, fellow who, uh, a company, uh, what is it, a property developer saying that uh, there should be more pain in the economy to teach workers that who they're working for. Uh, really one of those uh, big end of town people being exposed, not realising that everybody was listening to what they were saying, saying it in a voice that appeared to uh, imply that it was terribly reasonable. Uh, But uh, of course, it's just an exposing of uh, what the big end of town really thinks and uh, that everybody should be uh, only uh, in the grip of their... Uh, their plan, which is that uh, modern slavery is the only future we can expect. But anyway, uh, the actions are continuing on uh, Australian university campuses and this week it was at RMIT, so we'll go down there today. Um, We follow that with a uh, chat with the filmmaker and the protagonists in the film, Our Voice, Our Heart, which is a Northern Territory documentary 
it's getting its official world premiere at the Darwin International Film Festival tomorrow, uh, Sunday, 17th of uh, September. And uh, its uh, intention is to bring to the world the people who will most be affected by this referendum, the the voice, uh, and will not be counted. And we they say, want to listen to their story and share the, their vision to help people to vote with the intention and purpose. It follows two uh, fellows, um, two Darwin locals, Tiwi man Jackson DeSantis and Welpiri Jawani man Justin Grant, who realised that uh, they had no idea what the voice to parliament means to them and their community and how millions are Australians going to know what to do with the referendum. So that's what the film was about. And I had a chat with the filmmaker Laurent Good and to uh, Justin Grant about uh, the making of the film and their and general reflections on what they discovered. We uh, follow that with This Is The Week That Was and uh, the end of the um, program is going to be devoted to the opening of a rather interesting festival called Tools For After which had its um, opening event on Thursday but uh, at the uh, Fitzroy Town Hall. It's uh, almost a bigger than Ben Her Italian uh, Ideas Festival, first Festival of Ideas. It's uh, got a lot, uh, three different aspects, uh, technology, um, uh, film and literature. But uh, I'll let them tell you about what's what's going to be happening. So that's what we're going to be talking about. But before we do, um, we'll hear a voice about casualised workforces for uni workers. <laughs> Wage theft is the symptom of the problem. What we're seeing is obscenely well-remunerated vice-chancellors. It's appalling how badly universities have been treating their casual workers. They want to pretend that they can continue on with business as usual. Well, comrades, we're here to say no. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Yeah, well, that was in a nutshell what was being spoken about on the campus of RMIT on Wednesday. Uh, I got to catch up with one of the uh, striking academics to find out what was going on and why RMIT workers are really ropeable. We've been following all the different NTU disputes and RMIT is following on from a major uh, walkout at Melbourne University last week. Can you tell me about what's going on here? Uh, so we've been asking for a bargaining enterprise agreement and as far as I'm, I've, I've been told by the union leaders that we've had nothing, no, no. We've asked for what's been given, basically the same thing that's been given in New South Wales, you know, a fair pay rise, fair work conditions. Um, uh, so yeah, um, and, and fair, 
you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a sessional and I don't have permanent employment and I work as a PhD candidate as well with a lot of other people from in the same situation. So it's all about, it comes down to fairness for, you know, fair pay for a fair job is uh, what it comes down to. And it's the same with what Melbourne have done, it's what Monash have done, it's, it's basically what's fair. Yeah, and uh, also it's to do with uh, the precarious nature of your work, I presume. Well, this is the thing. So on, on the sign, that, that's the big noise that just came in. There's yeah. a lot of students saying, hey, pay my favourite teachers and, and the influence that they're having. But if you, if you don't have secure um, employment, then you have no, sorry, no choice but to go to another university. And, and it seems odd to me to spend money on my, a student like myself and then I have to go and get a job somewhere else. Uh, and there's, there's you know, a dozen other people I work with in the same situation. So uh, I'll be honest, some of the sessionals live on you know, $39,000, $40,000 a year. They, they don't have enough money to live on. Yeah, and the, the other issue, of course, is that um, they refuse to actually negotiate properly, don't they? That's my understanding of it, is that they, they just refuse uh, outright to come to the bargaining table and it's it's the sense of business as opposed to uh, we're not we're not a business we are a business but we're not a business we're here but good business is to have your best employees and keep your employees happy and it, it's not and I think it's it's a situation I'm, I'm only very new to this but it, I've come from a school teaching background so I'm familiar with what strike action is about but it's it's a situation whereby because there's a limited number of jobs and a lot of academics they can pull that card but that's not helping the students and that's what we're all about because they're not getting the best people in front of them. I know that RMIT that you're working to rule, but now you're actually decided that it has to be more, uh, you actually have to take protected action, right? That's correct. Uh, so Melbourne and Monash went out on strike a couple of months ago and we went out in support with them and then went to the bargaining table, nothing was done. Our, our EBA is still from 2018. And obviously, the world's changed dramatically since then. Um, and and all th across all three universities, we, we're asking for a fair pay rise, but they keep telling us they have no money. But you know, and this is the other thing that they don't factor in. We we deal with international students, for example, who uh, have physical illnesses, and that's you know, there's, there's an element of teacher PTSD out of that because we're seeing them struggle. We've had students have to go back to the country because. Um, they can't afford to live in Melbourne and, and that falls on us and we, we're, you know, it's all that extra stuff outside. But yeah, I mean, we, we, we asked for a, a discussion, we got nothing. We went out on a stop work, work to rule, we got nothing. So it's, it's, that's the nature of this, you've got no choice, you have to go on strike. If they're not going to listen, um, then, then we have, as we've made a common decision that we have to go out uh, and it's not something we take lightly. We don't want to interrupt student learning, we don't want to interrupt classes, but in the, in the bigger picture, it's going to benefit who the key stakeholders in this institution are, are the students. You know, it, it, it's pretty amazing how much uh, personal effort and how much money a person puts into building their academic credentials to be able to teach at a university. Um, and I, I mean, I've been following this for quite a while and it seems to me that it's like they're creating a white collar sweatshop. Yeah, look, I, I can speak uh, from my experiences as a PhD student that they're on, um, they asked me the other day, there's, there's people from China, there's people from Korea, there's people from all over the world and they're on scholarships of $31,000. 
Now, if you said to anybody else that um, you're, you're getting paid $31,000 a year and live in Melbourne, people would look at you like you were crazy. And if you work out the sums, it's less than minimum wage. And like you said, that um, I, can, I can speak for myself, that getting towards a PhD level, it's, it's three years. Some of them are doing it part-time, it's six years. It's, it's a good 10 years of learning. And it's very odd that you should be, your job opportunities for most of them are to get tutoring work. And then people go, oh, but you're getting $150 an hour, but that's only two hours a week for 12 weeks at a time. And then you don't have work outside of that. And then there's corrections. And then they're exactly right. So, um, again, it's, it's you, uh, 15, some of this on the signs there, 15 minutes a student is not long enough to mark a 2,000 word essay. So they're not getting the proper feedback that they need. But, and, and, you know, all the PhD students I work with, every single one of them is looking for a job somewhere else. Well, you know, the other thing that's interesting to me, having actually worked in a private college on a, is that these institutions require the, rely on the professional standing of the people who teach here for their credentials but you actually have no control over the situation. That's right, correct. So, um, just hearing a very loud confrontation between staff members and security. Um, but this is the thing, this is what draws the students in, is the quality of the staff and the people that are here. And, you know, you say a reputation of, I'm in media and communications, for example, and, and we are one of the best journalism universities. So you need to have the best people to attract the students to that, to maintain that, um, maintain that reputation. But if you're not paying people a fair wage, they're going to look elsewhere. And it, so it just seems to me a very odd way of doing things that take care of your staff and everything takes care of itself. So this is a full day strike. Um, what goes, what's happening in your, uh, what are you aware of now? Uh, I'm not 100% sure what's going to be the next course of action. It, uh, if RMIT come to the bargaining table, then uh, much like what just happened in New South Wales, um, the teachers went on strike because the government up there promised them 10% and then reneged on it and went back to what the, the previous Liberal government had said under their wage cap. So, look, if, if RMIT come to the table and want to bargain and, and then we'll vote on what they offer, if they don't, then I imagine that strike action will become longer. And I'm not sure where Melbourne University or Monash are sitting at, but um, you know, it's the, the fact that the three biggest universities in Melbourne, uh, are, are, and it's, as I said, it's not something, the academics are that serious about it to shut down. Um, that, that, that's, it's just got to that point where they don't want to talk about it, so we've got no choice. But if they do come to the table, then see what they offer and see what we vote on. But if they don't, I imagine it'll be rolling strike action across all three universities. You know, it's funny because a while ago they had in their EBA that they wanted you guys to smile a lot or smile more, which I thought was quite hilarious. I hadn't heard that one. Um, I... Don't. I mean, the thought that they could actually that, that, go yeah, well, that, that far, you know. Well, that, that, that to me also indicates a little bit of disconnect of what we do. Um, that if that's what they're worried about, um, that's, that's not... I mean, maybe some students complained about it or something one, at one point, but I think what it more came down to is, is the teaching hours. Uh, you know, as I said, if I come from a school teaching background, if I wanted to be a school teacher, I'd go and do it. 
uh, but I don't. I, I, I want to be an academic and, and, and use my expertise in that field. So they wanted to make extra teaching time. It's also more about the fact that there's people here uh, that do the same job and sit in the same office but get paid differently. You know, so it's just, if you say that to people, they go, that's just unfair. Exactly right. So, so I know it's a big institution and I know that, uh, that, that things, you know, don't run always smoothly, but it seems absurd that you have the same people getting paid the same, uh, different wages for the same job. And, and academics are here to research. That's what drives, you know, innovation. But if you have them teaching all the time and, and you know, tutorial sizes, I've got tutorials that are up to 35 students now. School teaching background, um, that same situation's happening, 30 students in a class. And it just means that, again, back to the key stakeholders being the students, we can't give them the time they deserve. They're not getting that individual attention. And, you know, smiling is fine, but if you're exhausted, it's, it's hard to want to smile. Also, fees are, are really high. Well, that's right, um, and especially in media and comms, for example, because previous governments have put up, you know, the cost to that 10,000 uh, mark. So it, it is very high, and students expect, you know, bang for their buck, basically. Um, and if, if people are exhausted, then they can't, they're not getting that bang for their buck. And that was a voice from uh, RMIT's striking workers uh, down uh, on Wednesday. Uh, this is an ongoing dispute uh, with uh, employers at our major universities, the higher education sector, but it's not its not new. It's going right across Australia. And uh, I mentioned that there was a real kerfuffle about Tim Gurner, a property developer, saying at the uh, Australian Financial Review what the big end of town's view is of the place of workers. And I just thought you might like to hear what he actually said, because it was up on Twitter and you may not have caught it. I think the problem that we've had is that we've, you know, we, we have, people decided they didn't really want to work so much anymore through COVID and that has had a massive issue on productivity. You know, tradies have definitely pulled back on productivity. You know, they, they have been paid, paid a lot to do not too much in the last few years. And we need to see that change. We need to see unemployment rise. Unemployment has to jump 40, 50% in my view. We need to see pain in the economy. We need to remind people that they work for the employer, not the other way around. I mean, there is a, there's been a systematic change where employees feel the employer is extremely lucky to have them, um, as opposed to the other way around. So it's a dynamic that has to change. We've got to kill that attitude and that has to come through hurting the economy, which is what the whole global, you know, the, the world is trying to do. The governments around the world are trying to increase unemployment to get that to some sort of normality. And we're seeing it. I think every employer now is seeing it. I mean, there is definitely massive layoffs going off. People might not be talking about it, but people are definitely laying people off and we're starting to see less arrogance in the employment market. And that has to continue because that will cascade across the cost balance. Get a load of that, eh? More pain in the economy. And uh, we need to be touching our forelock uh, more so that the employer feels that they're in complete control. Uh, we'll hear more about that in This Is The Week That Was because uh, obviously the class struggle doesn't exist. Apparently it doesn't exist only in the minds of uh, the big end of town. No. I want a lover but I don't want the trouble. 
Sweet Life. <laughs> Great song. Uh, you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And we're going to move on to Our Voice, Our Heart. It's a film uh, made by uh, the filmmaker Lorenz Good uh, in association with the two main characters, which are Jackson DeSantis and Justin Grant, two young uh, Indigenous men who are uh, took part in a discovery tour of the Northern Territory going to community to find out uh, about their reactions to The Voice and uh, also to find out more about culture 
and the uh, country that uh, they were visiting. And I got to speak to the filmmaker Lorenz uh, Gould and uh, Justin about the experience of making the film and the uh, what they learnt when they went out uh, to communities. So we're here to talk about uh, Our Voice, Our Heart. Tell me about how the project began. The project began um, with some people in the community up here in Darwin approaching me as a filmmaker to say, um, we think that there needs to be some content that tells an NT perspective but isn't aligned to campaigns, isn't about making people vote one way or another, but is about getting context and that sort of fundamental uh, feeling for what life is like, one, in the territory, in remote communities, and, um, yeah, and doing that in a, in a way that's, you know, more accessible to the average person. Well, you point out right at the beginning that the question is, what is a referendum? Well, that's the thing, you know, like start from the basics, right? I think that there's... To a certain degree, there's a lot of assumptions around what everybody knows. And I think the great thing about Justin and Jackson, who, you know, made this film with me and went on that journey, is they put up their hand, they admitted, well, I don't know what a referendum is, you know. <laughs> yeah. But they're not alone. Justin, what was the really important element of doing this film for you? Because you go to a lot of different uh, communities and you find out things that you didn't expect. Oh, what, yeah. Well, what's the important element? I think, um, well, for me, there was it, it was a lot of a personal journey, you know, going back on my home country um, to start off with and speaking to my family, you know, and then from there, you know, I ended up going on journeys all around into different communities, which that was, um, that for me, I, I, you know, I guess like when me and Lawrence were coming up with the um, thing about this film is that when we go into these communities, we want to showcase the differences within the community and the difference of opinions but not only that, the difference of culture. Because a lot, of, a lot of the time, I think, going into this project, we were thinking, like, um, we want to highlight these differences and showcase that, um, you know, with all the community leaders um, in different communities, they have their own, uh, you know, perception of, how they see their community and their people going forward. And that's, I think, I am passionate about that because I feel like a lot of the time Aboriginal people get generalised into one group. And uh, so the personal journey for me was actually, because I lived down in Melbourne for like 16 years and coming back home, I actually... Um, forgot myself, I knew it, but I forgot because I've been away for so long about, you know, culture, language and all of that and how important it is and kind of makes me feel like um, I thought I knew a lot about my culture and that, but I need to get back onto country again and be around my elders because there's a lot of things that have changed since I've been away and 
that's what it's like out in communities and we want to showcase that. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, on one hand, the voice is uh, an overarching idea, but it has to mm. it has to be comfortable with the individuality as well, right? Yeah, that's it. I think like uh, with the voice, it's, uh, we need to understand that everybody has their own opinions. Now, we're not trying to showcase that this is the be and, and end all of um, what the community wants. We want to start the conversation with other people to ask, to hopefully ask their community and find out what their um, views are. This is just a glimpse into um, the Northern Territory community. How about we, you know, start a conversation with, um, you know, the Victorian communities, the Sydney communities, and hear what their thoughts are and fears and how it's going to affect their culture, you know, because it's all different. Yeah, uh, and I guess the big thing about this is actually getting the... Uh, uh, there's a word for uh, West white Westerners like me in the Northern Territory. I can't remember what the word is. Bullander. Yeah. There's a few different ones. It depends where you are. Bullander's up in the um, sort of the East Arnhem area. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gadio uh, in, in more desert country. Yeah. Non-Indigenous people. Yeah. Know. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a good thing for non-Indigenous people to actually get a perspective on themselves. Through this totally. film. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh -huh. uh, what I was going to say is, like, um, you know, there's also an insight of um, how the government has affected the community, which is kind of pretty apparent in this film, uh, I think. Um, and that is the mistrust and the promises that are given uh, like a set to the community. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just think like um, nervousness around Westerners coming in is um, more, yeah, it's like, uh, are you guys giving us hope and then making promises and then taking it away from us? Like yeah. we see this come into communities constantly. You know, we but they're not seeing anything that's sticking. Mm. Yeah, well, it was interesting. Um, the uh, young woman uh, from the place where you had to go across uh, into yeah, crocodile Yana country. Thompson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a, Thompson, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was a fascinating conversation you had with her. Yeah, exactly. And I think she's a great example of somebody who works really closely in those communities and just constantly sees the same issues coming up. Great intentions, but the lack of fundamental understanding and the lack of continuality with people in certain roles is just so counter to the culture that has existed for so long. Like, and, and the expectation that it will just adapt is, you know, I think that that's misplaced. If we're going to have collaborations, if we're going to have, you know, people coming to learn and be part of it, well, you kind of have to commit to that. You know, it's not like something you just turn up and you do one year and then you run out of energy and you prefer the creature comforts of, you know, um, your urban lifestyle from where you've come. But when that person leaves, like, it leaves a hole, a gap, you know, and, and all of the energy and time that the community's put into that person. 
And I think that, that that's a real problem. Yeah, and it's a big cultural difference, isn't it? I mean, the uh, people who have come to Australia uh, or whatever this landmass is actually called um, are dissipated people. And therefore, but they're an arrogant people as well. So therefore, this is a time for actually listening and hearing stuff that you don't know. That's what the voice oh, yeah. is about, right? Eh? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's, you know, I think that was a great journey that Jackson and Justin go on by starting off by saying we don't know. You know, we, we need to learn. And that, you know, and that's, that's not only isolated for uh, non-Indigenous people. You know, there's a lot of Indigenous people that are disconnected from either their family or have, you know, the experience of maybe their their community. But, you know, there's other communities. And we all have room to learn and to respect in our experience, especially on this trip, like the generosity of people who have experienced so much hardship over so long and so much trauma and yet remain so positive and so welcoming mm. and yet that just isn't reciprocated by our community at large. I think that's the real difficulty with this situation and with some of the discourse around the voice and some of the reasons why people have for opposing it. They just seem really out of touch with the, the, the reality of these communities' existence mm. and, and what they've experienced over the last couple of hundred years. It's also funny for like well not funny. It's uh, like with with um, you know when I was living down in Melbourne, there's um, you know these questions of um, oh you know why can't Aboriginal people adapt to how the system is? You know what I mean? And it's like uh, you know they should know now how to adapt. It's like wow, you know um, how about we have a look at the communities that have only um, that are carrying strong in their culture, and people want to talk about how amazing and great that is. But then you have a look at it in, in a different forum, and it's like it is pretty cool, but there's a lack of support for them, and a lack of you know things can get taken away. There's mistrust. There's you know cultural fights. You know. There's like all these things, and um, you know, it, it, it's just like, how does a culture, you know, um, who is strong in their culture and want to live by their culture, adapt? Um, be told, oh, okay, you should be able to adapt because you've been through all of this um, stuff. You know, it's like, what if they like? They're not saying that they want to adapt with um, the way that Western uh, world is, they're saying that they want to keep their culture and the culture is important to them because that's their links to their ancestors. That's their links to their, um, you know, their path in life, you know, their tribal stance, their trading group, and they don't want to lose that. So how can we adapt to a Western society without losing that? You try and ask these questions down south and a lot of people are confused. But... G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. 
and you with Annie on uh, Solidarity Breakfast and we're in the middle of a conversation that I had with uh, Justin Grant and uh, Lorenz uh, Good about a film called Our Voice, Our Heart, which is an investigation of uh, uh, the um, e- uh, experience of community in, New- uh, in the Northern Territory uh, around uh, what they know about the voice and what their opinions are. But it also goes a bit further than that. It actually takes us with um, these two fellows, uh, Justin Grant and Jackson DeSantis, uh, to two communities uh, to experience country and culture uh, from a point of view of Indigenous people uh, and uh, reflecting back to the general community uh, their opinions, people whose voices are generally overlooked. Uh, The film is having its uh, world premiere at the Northern Territory International Film Festival and uh, on Sunday uh, it will come down here and we will get to see it or you will get to see it because I've actually seen it. That's why I'm able to have this conversation. But uh, this is the second part of the conversation. I, I found it really interesting. The uh, I know that uh, Jackson isn't there, but uh, one of the powers of a, a film is that you see people's faces and his yeah. mate from school was really fascinating yeah. uh, because, you know, there's that whole philosophical carry-on about Plato saying that right and wrong is an a priori fact. When he was talking about right and wrong and the two different systems of right and wrong, that was fascinating. Yeah. Hey. Isn't it? And then you see, and also like his follow-up, you know, can, can is there a way for him to work together? And instantly it's like, the positivity of yeah, yeah, I think I think we can, I think we can find a way. And you're like the nature of of wanting, despite all of the trauma, to still be positive. The, the attitude isn't everybody get off this country, you know, we don't want anybody here. The attitude is, if you're here, can we still be here too? You know, the attitude is like, can you, you know, where is the room? Where is the respect? Where is the desire? for us to continue our culture and then be able to find ways to work together. And I think that that was a really heartwarming aspect of, you know, our, our trip. And, you know, we didn't have these, we didn't know what we would find. We didn't know <laughs> how we were responded. And, yeah. you know, um, Justin was, you know, for certain places, he was quite uh, scared in some ways about how he, he would be received as, as somebody from a from a different place and you know with a different uh, heritage to some of the areas that we we're going into, is that right? Yeah, yeah. It feels like I, I was saying to Lawrence when we were starting this journey into going into the different communities about like how you know he might be more accepted than I will would because. I'm going in and they were, they're going to question who I am, what my tribes are, who I'm connected with, and see if um, that matches up. And, you know, sometimes, what if, you know, and that's a scary thought because I'll go into these communities with, okay, I'm Walpri, I'm Gurunji, I'm proud and all of this. You know, they're not going to look at that and go, oh, yeah, he, here is a real strong Aboriginal person. They're not going to look at me like that. They're going to go, what's he so proud about? Like, what has he done, you know? 
And then, like, also there's that factor, and then there's the other factor of if I'm going into a community without doing any research and I find out that that tribe is warring with my family, how do I deal with it, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's funny because uh, uh, part of my family is... uh, Irish and Irish Catholic and um, it took me I realized that in actual fact if you go to Ireland they know which people are Catholic and which people are Protestants by their name right mm, wow. and so that's yeah. like stepping into a trap without knowing it mm. yeah. so yeah. It's, it's the same kind of thing and culture is culture yeah and, and like I mean one of the things I find alarming is like you know it's like it's always one way why is the indigenous people not Mm. adapting why aren't they Mm. finding a way why have they got these problems but the conversation is never about maybe the problem is the way that the you know the non-indigenous community is is trying to degrade you know how that relates it's a two-way thing right yeah yeah like and the pressure always, the easy answer is like, oh, they, them, yeah. you know, they're the other, as opposed to, aren't we, you know, if we're all Australians and then we have First Nations, actual nations, let's give them the respect and, the and you know, the authority to act as nations and have a say over what happens in their territory and their communities and, and then find a way to listen to the best way that we can work together. Like, things pretty basic to me. Yeah, it's the thing about it's not the, it's not a black problem. It's actually a white problem. Yeah, I think you're right. I I find it really uh, challenging this sort of thing. I mean, I lived in the bush for about six years, like in the trees, and um, I uh, learnt so many things that I didn't know, although I'd thought that I knew things. <laughs> mm. And in this film, you go to you go to country, and you learnt a lot, didn't you, Justin? Yeah, even though I come from a very cultural background, I'm I'm still learning. You know, I I was I, like when I went down south. You know, um, a lot of people were like um, picking my brain for cultural knowledge. You know, and I was like, you know, I could offer what I could. Yeah, but there was uh, rules and protocols about what I could share and what I could do. Like for instance. I would never dance on somebody else's country unless I was given permission by the elder of the country. And I would never dance my um, cultural stuff from up here and down south because it's, you know, it's going to interrupt the spirits and confuse the culture down there. So there's, um, you know, culture and protocols that I, I have to abide by. But, um, it's like you said about lumping together people when in actual fact it's about place, isn't it? Country is not yeah. just the whole country. It's about place. And and uh, Westerners have sort of lost their place. Yep. Mm. Yep. I suppose, I suppose like, uh, like for me, like um, the reason why I learned a lot is because I didn't generalise myself mm. as an Aboriginal person. I accepted the fact that I'm a welfare Gurindji person and I'm on someone else's country and I'm here to learn, you know, and that way I'm respecting their culture Mm. and their religion. So um, I think 
not only um, do Balandao white people um, need to understand that going into somebody's country you have to be open-minded, but Aboriginal people too, if they're not part of that country, need to go on with an open mind as well. It's about respect, and I guess the voice is the best outcome for the voice would be respect, right? Yeah. Well, the the best outcome for the voice, I think, would be um, education, like um, creating an accessible platform to educate uh, more people on coming onto country. I think. Because underlying all this is that a lot of the older people are very worried about uh, the continuation of culture and the young ones. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely the, the massive takeaway from talking about the future. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, I think one of the things that is hard for people to talk about explicitly, but. When the society at large doesn't demonstrate a sense of, of value for, for what you're a part of or what you have, then younger generations they they don't they don't see the value. Mm-hmm. You know, when there's not the leadership there to you know, and the, and our broader community saying that's something that we really want. We want that difference. We want you and as a group to to preserve that culture and we celebrate that. We want to do what we can to empower you to have that and us not have it, you just have it. And that's something that's really special. Then that's become something that motivates you to be a part of. When the conversation is that they're really negative, when it's about the problems that, you know, um, that may exist and it's about when the sort of, um, when all the dialogue is about, the issues and the negativity, well, you know, if you're a young person growing up, well, what choices are you going to make, you know? I was just thinking, you know, um, you know, going back to that question of, you know, um, me learning out on country, I think, like, uh, the biggest learning curve as well was just, like, how much the Western society influenced my mindset when I went down south and I was living there for 16 years and... Um, you know, getting what I needed, thought I needed to get to approve um, my workability within Western society, which was go to university, get a um, piece of paper so that you were considered valuable. And uh, so I went and I did that and then I came back and, um, you know, and then being, you know, with my Western mindset going into communities, I felt a lot of hatred towards uh, at the start of, um, you know, how, you know, I was in this political mindset and I was like, I'm angry and I'm angry. And, you know, when I was out on country and it wasn't until the elders out there kind of eased my mind and said, stop being angry, you know. (laughs) And, um, you know, you you can't think clearly when you're angry. And they're the ones, you know, going out there that really ground me and was like, you really can cannot, um, you know, you can't walk on this country with anger. You've got to listen to the people. There's and uh, it's not going to serve anything. And that's what. And I, I just kind of bit by bit, as the film went on, and I was letting go of all of this anger and hatred. 
and trying to clear my mindset um, to how, because that's how I can better speak for my people is what I've come to learn. And, um, yeah, and it kind of follows what I've said before when I was down, you know, in Melbourne, is that you can't beat racism with a bitter heart. If you always have a chip on your shoulder, you're not going to listen to people. And it needs to try to create that conversation without anger and try to open each other up to um, having a conversation, whether it's about a voice, you know, whether it's about, you know, racism or just anything. You know, I think um, don't be frightened, don't be angry, just, um, you know, say this is my opinion and um, let's talk about it and respect each other's opinions. If you respect each other's opinions, then you can open up your ears to listening to what is being said. Hi. The um, film is uh, having its uh, Northern Territory uh, premiere on Sunday. Um, tell us about yeah, that. World premiere, that is. World premiere. We're so excited. <laughs> Yeah, tell us about that. Well, we're screening it at the Darwin International Film Festival. Yeah, tickets are almost sold out, so that's pretty down at the deck chair cinema. <laughs> no one's ever been to Darwin and been there. It's um, it's a one of a kind. Yeah, I think it was really important for us to screen it up here. Like, ultimately, it's got a life outside of the Northern Territory, but it is a territory story. All the people that are in the film are from up here. We did a previous screening at Gama which was, you know, a wonderful opportunity and we had a really great positive response from that. And then, yeah, to be able to do a world premiere up here in Darwin and, and celebrate that. And then um, it's also going to have a cinema run around the country with the independent cinemas. And then starting in October, we will it will be up for streaming on SBS On Demand. Well, good luck and enjoy enjoy the premiere. And thank you very much for talking to me. I found it very interesting talk. No worries. Oh, no worries. I think let's all start the conversation, eh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Hi, we're from Fitzroy Primary School and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. I'm gonna 
Public transport's great. What's not great is that unless you've got a radio with you, you can't listen to 3CR when you're on it. Until now. The Community Radio Plus app lets you listen to us wherever you are. Get on board and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. A weak solidarity, Briggy team listener, when at last we had clarified why we should all vote no in this referendum. There's no problem to vote yes for, well, grammatically for which too, as Hayseed and Sheepshit Party spokesperson Jacinta Confused Them Price informed us colonisation has had a positive impact on the terra nullius non-land, non-people. Why they were brought the wonderful benefits of running water and food. So... Like Jacinta, just how did they survive for thousands of years without water and food? Thank God Arthur Philip arrived just in time. But to be fair to Jacinta, her argument stands up because thanks to Arthur and our most gracious majesty, I think it was George Third, whom incidentally Byron described as that mad, 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 mad king. Anyway, thanks to the terra nullius non-land non-people are by definition non-existent and therefore could not have been adversely affected by colonisation. Although on the obverse, they therefore also could not have benefited. But in fairness, Jacinta does seem to have missed a few clues, a few events, a few consequences since Arthur brought all that running water and food. A bit of a problem for caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo constable Peter Duffer that Jacinta refused to endorse his referendum which would ensure terra nullius non-land non-people don't have a voice. Presumably because with all those benefits, all that running water and cornucopia of food, they don't need a voice. But Pete did say of Jacinta's wise words, people could have, you know, like different opinions. What a mind.
Indeed, a week for iconoclasm of assumed givens, Jacinta smashing the assumption that colonisation may not have been absolutely beneficial to the First Peoples, and now yesterday's Trublawazi capitalist reviews smashing another assumption, workers get fair share of pie, screaming across P1. Productivity commission busts union wages myth. Just as deaths in custody, stolen generations, destruction of sacred sites, massacres and general disadvantage we now know to be a myth, thanks to Jacinta, we also now know all that carry-on about obscene profits by the caring business class amid slow wages growth is also a myth. Indeed, not only a myth, but a union wages myth, confirming what the week it was has been saying for 40 years. Evil, evil unions, workers ripping off and exploiting poor, innocent, caring employers. Exposed this week by one of the most innocent and exploited of caring employers for... Just when we thought New Reserve Losses Bank Supremo Michelle Bulldust displayed a severe lack of empathy in calling for lots more unemployed, why are these economic cures restricted to the highly paid and filthy rich? Why, why don't those on the economic edge, those governments and the filthy rich know are doing it tough, call for higher unemployment for their own good? Just when we thought Michelle a, a touch unsympathetic, filthy rich property developer Tim Gurner get richer and richer made her look like a Marxist smash capital eat the rich revolutionary, calling for a 50% increase in unemployment because people have to feel pain if Tim's going to keep on raking in mega profits. And workers have to work much harder if Tim's going to keep raking in mega profits. And they must take a wage cut if Tim's going to keep raking in mega profits. Those harder working for fewer, for lower pay workers must realise they work for their caring employer, not the other way round, if Tim's going to keep on raking in mega profits. And just when we thought Tim's progressive policies for a society in which people like Tim can keep on raking in mega profits may have been those of a filthy rich maverick, Minerals Profit Council Chair Andrew Mickle more and more and more backed him up. Workers in certain parts of the economy are enjoying a lifestyle that is not sustainable, Andrew warned us, and no prize for guessing which certain parts of the economy he's talking about. If you're going to produce less, well, I'm sorry, then you have to accept that you will ultimately have to get paid less, indicating Andrew must head off every morning with his mining equipment over his shoulder and spend a massively productive day in the bowels of the earth, sweating into his ultra-expensive Italian shirts and suits. And higher unemployment would break the cycle and bring workplace relations back to a sensible balance. Ah, balance, Andrew, sensible balance. Workers knowing their place in the wage slavery world, working harder, earning less, appreciating their luck at having a job at all as the dole queues stretch for blocks with 50% more dole bludgers. And it won't come as a hell of a surprise to us, listeners. The two Blue Aussie Capitalist Review commented that Tim said publicly what a lot of caring employers think. The capitalist review and Tim and caring employers who can't believe there are workers at evil unions who still persist with the dated shibboleth of class struggle. 
Now, listener, if you have any faith, so to speak, in the value of prayer, pray fervently to your God that Tim's fortunes collapse. His developments hit a financial brick wall. He loses everything, is rendered homeless, unemployed, in the gutter. Not that I wish him any ill will. One caring employer who would most definitely not agree with Tim is that exemplar of caring employers, former airline, which used to be our airline supremo, Alan Joystick, watching his golden parachute balloon even higher as the high court agreed he had sacked or, sorry, sadly had to let go an entire workforce, all 1,683 of them, to prevent them exercising their legal rights. As if, when poor Alan was just trying to do his best for the hard-working mums and dad shareholders like, well, like Alan, <coughs> handed thousands more mums and dad shares for tossing 1,683 workers onto the industrial scrap heap. Shareholders certainly not affected by this same-work-same-pay legislation that is causing collective dyspepsia in the sundry chambers of profits as the new labour hire workforce received same pay for same work. Good on you. Well done, Alan. Just a lot less same pay as the sadly let go workers ripping Alan off. The airline which used to be, after unsuccessfully fighting the evil union claim in the federal court, unsuccessfully fighting the evil union claim in the... Um, in the appeals court and unsuccessfully fighting the evil union claim in the high court immediately apologised to the workers it may have hurt and said it was sincerely sorry. T to be honest, new Supremo Vanessa Hudson Rivers of Wealth was brutally honest. We're even more sorry uh, with the decision. In fact, if we're being honest, we are genuinely sincerely sorry with the decision. To make matters worse, to rub salt into the wound, expose the cracks in the fuselage, so to speak, and other mixed metaphors, the evil union is now threatening not just millions in compensation for the sadly let-go workers, but wants compensation for the union fees it lost. Selfish, selfish evil union. Talk about kicking a great true blue Aussie when it's down. To make matters worse worse, there are loud voices suggesting poor Alan should not parachute away with the trillions with which he plans to leap off the falling wreck. Not exactly exposed as a third myth, although the jury's obviously still out, climate change, if there is such a thing, and looking around the globe, there are few uh, indications other than the massive extremes of climate, of floods and fires and destruction and thousands of deaths, so... What a timely series by the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, Energy Future, bringing the usual balance and objectivity for which Lord Rupert is famous, telling us gas is the answer to climate change, if there is, proving the argument by quoting totally neutral experts like the major behemoths making a fortune out of gas and apparently unable to find anyone who disagrees with the gas behemoths then telling us coal is the answer. Dig it up and bury our heads in the sand, quoting totally neutral experts like the major behemoths making a fortune out of coal, apparently unable to find anyone who disagrees with the coal industry, and telling us the real solution to what it knows doesn't exist is nuclear, quoting totally neutral experts like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you guessed it,
Advocates of nuclear energy never mention the little problem of how to deal with thousands of years of radioactive waste. So somewhere along the line, listener, we must have missed the major scientific breakthrough which eliminated this as a problem. They also fail to mention in terms of scientific breakthrough that the fossil solutions to fossil pollution, burying your head in the sand, and the state-of-the-art small modular nuclear plants have not scientifically broken through, don't actually, um, what's the word for it, oh, oh that's it, don't actually work. Finally, in the why can't they mind their own business department, a um, delegation of indigenous Brazilians has come to the to Tubluwazi over that dam collapse eight years ago that did nothing more serious than kill people and totally destroy their way of life and livelihoods, and now demanding compensation from our very own big Tubluwazi BHP for bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter. Don't they know these things take time? The, the people of Bhopal are still waiting. And goodness, you can't make bloody huge profits if you can't bloody huge pollute. But a bit of advice for the Indigenous peoples. They're asking BHP to abide by its Charter of Values, when of course it is. Good morning. I think 3CR is the voice of the people, speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think, and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're at the end of the program really. But before we finish, we're going to go down to the opening at uh, Fitzroy Town Hall that happened on Friday. No, Thursday it was. Uh, It was uh, this thing called Tools for After. Uh, It was the opening night of uh, the affair. Uh, You might have seen the big posters around the place or heard some interviews, etc., but it's a sort of a fascinating idea. It's a, a, a focus on Italian responses to uh, the what they call the Anthropocene, the current geological age viewed as the period during which ma- human activity has been the dominant influence on climate and environment. Uh, this is a response through technology, film and literature. This is what this uh, Tools for After Festival of Ideas is about. But um, I went and investigated because I wanted to know more about it. Here we go. Yes, I'm uh, Cristina Gambi. I'm a marine biologist and ecologist from uh, the Polytechnic University of Marche from Italy. And uh, I'm here. Uh, as a researcher for the uh, ecosystem restoration since uh, the oceans and seas are very important for our life so we need to not only to protect and conserve our, the nature and the eco- marine ecosystems but also uh, restore when the ecosystems are uh, damaged or degraded and uh, uh, what, what are you hoping to achieve uh, by uh, this uh, expo uh, because uh, we were involved in the project dedicated to the ecosystem restoration and so the, uh, since the topic of this festival is the anthropogenic and all the uh, damages and the impact due to the human activities, uh, restoration is a, a good solution to try to recover the nature, recover our la- um, marine ecosystems and then our life. 
Hello, uh, my name is Silvia Marchesan. I'm from the University of Trieste in Italy and I'm a professor of chemistry. But mainly I'm a scientist. And the reason why I'm here is that we are inspired by nature uh, for its efficiency in recycling itself, transforming and adapting through different seasons, for instance. And so in the same way, we utilize um, very simple natural compounds that are able to self-organize into smart materials, such as hydrogels, that can respond to stimuli, they can transform themselves as needed, they can be biodegraded, and they can also be programmed, for instance, to self-decompose at a specific time into water and nutrients. So applications vary and can span from uh, medicine to cosmetics to agriculture uh, and so on, and environmental remediation, for instance. I have a quick word with you about uh, this rather spectacular event. Can you tell yeah. me a little bit about why it's happening? It's happening because uh, we won uh, a call for proposal from the Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, in the context of an Italian festival of creativity. And uh, uh, so we won a grant and uh, with our project, the project is Tools for After, and uh, we, we would like to show in Australia the Italian way to face the Anthropocene, what uh, is the impact of the human being on the planet. So we are showing uh, pieces with the high technology and uh, all sustainable and with the natural uh, materials. Yeah, and that's what this event is about, but there's many facets to this festival, isn't there? Excuse me? Many facets to this festival. There's a lot of different events. Yes, here there are three events. It's a science, architecture and design, but the Festival of Italian Creativity, it will be six weeks. We will have three days of cinema, the first, the 8th and the 15th of October in the capital. And then the 16th, the 18th and the 20th of October, we will have uh, three meetings, uh, three talks between scientists and uh, writers. We produced a, bo a, a book with uh, new novels, never published before. We commissioned these uh, novels, talking about the future. And so it's a very big festival. And why in Melbourne? Why Italian in Melbourne? Because uh, this... Um, uh, this competition, let's call competition, is uh, to promote the creativity of the Italian Cultural Institute abroad. We won the project, so we, we are in Melbourne, and we did it in Melbourne. So uh, in the, this year, the winners are two, the Consulate of Detroit and the Institute, Italian Cultural Institute in Melbourne. So we have uh, two cities in the world where we have uh, the Festival of Italian Creativity. In uh, October, we will have uh, the winners for the next year. So three other cities in the world next year, 2024, they will have uh, a Festival of Italian Creativity and they will show their own project. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. So, Joe, what's your reaction to this? Well, I've only seen half of it, Annie, but um, I think it's very... Uh, very interesting and they've got some serious funding for this um, I've been told about that and I guess this, I'm just looking at the screen that there was photography AI generated and that's I guess it's further to the discussion about where industrial design is going to be going and who it's going to be created by
Very interesting. That's a question. But, but the thing is, inter- it's, it's obviously futuristic, but. Oh, yeah, yeah, but it's also interesting that now. there's um, uh, uh, the Italian element to it, which <laughs> is the important bit, yeah. isn't it? Well, it's the, what we've. What, well, some of us might be aware of what Italian design has been over the years, and also what the usage of the say the knives and implements and various things oh, yeah, are. that's a whole different story and, and obviously i've just come back from sicily which um is very interesting for me to compare about uh what what i've seen and and uh, getting to know the people a bit more their routines uh what they use um and so yeah it's very curious the why melbourne why italy why, why, why melbourne it, why has it come here well, I guess, you know, as we know that uh, the, the Italian language has been very pr- prominent here since, very much more since, uh, I guess, the Second World War. It was always around from a little bit pre-First World War and a bit after First World War, but the Italian language is, is a really big presence here. And even though now it's been superseded, it probably comes up, I think it comes fifth in the line of most popular languages from diaspora. Um, and so a lot of, you know, a lot of machinery has been brought from Europe, from Italy, to Australia to do various things, whether it's certainly in the food production, whether you want to call it coffee or oil make, uh, olive oil making. And so that's another element, I guess, why, why there's that thing here and, and the presence of the museums and, and the Italian, Italian Institute of Culture here over many years. Um, yeah. Well, it's fascinating. Of course, it is, Annie. No, well, I mean... What, what have you noticed? Well, some of the products which have been sort of like the reusing of natural products into something else has been really fantastic. Um, it's a, this thing which is a brick, which is a composite of a whole lot of nut shells, but it has the weight and the feel of a brick. Oh, wow. Yeah. But there's another one which is made from pineapple skins, and then it's been remade into a fabric that's got the shape of pineapple skins <laughs> but it's a fabric and there's an image of it sort of being used as a bag but it's sort of it's got a really lovely feel to it yeah anyway very interesting may i have your attention please welcome everybody buonasera e benvenuti mi chiamo donna de mayo my name is donna de mayo and i'm your MC tonight Firstly, we acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land now known as Yarra. We acknowledge their creator spirit Bunjil, their ancestors and their elders. We acknowledge the strength and resilience of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung who have survived European invasion and never ceded sovereignty. We also acknowledge the significant contribution made by the many other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. We do acknowledge that Fitzroy and Collingwood are areas of special significance to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and we pay our respects to all the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community and elders from all nations here today and their elders past, present and emerging. We are here this evening for the unveiling and official launch of Tools for After, presented by the Italian Cultural Institute L'Istituto di Cultura Italiana, an extraordinary six-week festival that celebrates Italian ingenuity. It does focus on exploring innovative solutions for a sustainable future 
and is expected to promote discussion and debate, which is probably happening right now, <laughs> on what needs to happen next. In this room, you will find an exhibition that canvasses science, architecture, design. It's all from Italy. But it's not the type of Italian design we're accustomed to, that one that reflects that rather refined aesthetic. Every object you see here, even the seemingly insignificant, is the result of new research into new materials. Some high-tech, other recovering raw materials. All of them consider sustainability. Now, there are objects, design, architecture, some made from the earth we walk on every day, made from 3D printers or even recycled materials. Each item is a symbol of sustainability, a possible solution, a way forward. Now, tonight you are encouraged to learn more about this vision and, of course, enjoy our hospitality and read those brief explanations and descriptions accompanying each display. Now, from tonight until October 20, the entire program embraces a range of inspiring components. So there's design, there's architecture, science, cinema and literature. There are three locations and these innovative and exciting exhibitions, displays and presentations are set to inspire and promote further action. To briefly mention, the cinematic celebration will be held at the Capitol Theatre from October 1st until the 15th. The literature section will be staged at Kowazit in Carlton from the 16th to the 20th. Now, tonight we are surrounded by thought-provoking design. We also have some of the designers and innovators who have travelled from Italy to be with us this evening. And they are pioneering Italian-Colombian architect Mauricio Cardenas Laverde, Cristina Gambi, who's come from the Università delle Marche, um, she's an ecolo ecology and biodiversity specialist. And Silvia Marquezan from the Department of Chemistry and Pharmaceutical Sciences at l'Università di Trieste. Now, let's hear from the people that are supporting this and have made tools for after actually happen. Firstly, I'd like to welcome the Consul General of Italy, Hannah Papalardo. Grazie. Chiedo un attimo di attenzione anche a quelli là dietro. I would like to ask for your attention also those guys who are talking in the back. Thank you. Dear Bridget O'Brien, Councillor of the Yarra City, representing Mayor Claudia Nguyen. Dear Edward Crossland, Deputy Mayor. Dear Yarra City Councillors. Dear members of the Victorian Parliament. Dear members and colleagues and friends of the Consular Corps in Melbourne, dear Marco Fedi, CEO of Coasit, dear Daniel Palmer, Acting Dean, School of Art, RMIT University, Caro Angelo Gioia, Director of the Italian Institute of Caccia, dear Maurizio Corrado, Architect and Curator of the project Tools for After, Dear Mauricio Gardenas, Cristina Gambi, Silvia Marquezan, architects and scientists involved in the project. Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, care amiche e amici dell'Italia. Allow me to start by acknowledging the Kulin Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. 
I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders people here today. On behalf of all of us, I would like to offer the acknowledgement also in Italian as an appropriate opening statement for an event celebrating Italian culture and creativity on Australian land. Riconosciamo la nazione Kulin, custode tradizionale del territorio su cui ci incontriamo quest'oggi. Rendiamo omaggio ai loro anziani passati e presenti ed estendiamo questo rispetto a tutte le persone aborigine e indigene delle, delle isole dello Stretto di Torres qui presenti. I am very glad to take part in the inauguration ceremony of the Festival of Italian Creativity and of the project Tools for After in particular, carried out by the Italian Cultural Institute of Melbourne as part of the Capitals of Creativity in the World, a competition conceived by the Italian Ministry of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation. I think it is particularly significant that Melbourne is the first city in the world to host this festival. And this is why we are very thankful to the Yara City Council for partnering with us and of course to Angelo and all his friends and partners for making this possible. Uh, please join me with a huge round of applause for them. Melbourne, very much like her sister city in Italy, guess who, which it is? Someone Milan, is one of the most livable cities in the world. Focused on promoting innovation, fully committed to protecting the environment while understanding that the changes that are affecting the whole planet, in this new era of humanity, called the Anthropocene, in Italian, Anthropocene. Ladies and gentlemen, on December 24, 1968, during the Apollo 8 mission, astronaut William Anders took a photograph of the Earth, rising above the horizon of the lunar soil. Some of you were already around. This guy, for sure. <laughs> the photo became known as Earthrise and is one of the most important pictures in our history. In this photo, for the first time, humanity saw itself from the outside and realized that the Earth is one, small, fragile, lost in the immensity of the cosmos. Since that image, which prompted our awareness that we all live in one environment, more than 50 years have passed. 50 years during which we have learned that global issues require global attention international cooperation, collective effort, and that we must strive to preserve our ability to deliver shared solutions to common problems, despite the challenges posed by the new multipolar world we live in. It is on us to defend our Mother, mother Earth. No second call. This is why it is key that new solutions are shared that new ideas circulate freely around the world. Culture is one of the most powerful tools to shape new beliefs and promote progress, while providing answers to everyday problems and to exceptional events that are now becoming the norm all around the planet, such as fires, floods, and earthquakes, 
which are very common both here in Australia and in Italy. Please join me in sending our prayers and thoughts to the people affected by the terrible earthquake in Morocco and the devastating floods in Libya. The Italian Festival of Creativity is an attempt to deal with all of that. A toolbox to share knowledge, a platform to ask questions that concerns us all while offering solutions. In this exhibition, you will find ideas for an environmentally friendly everyday life in all areas that we have chosen to address. And you will see how Italian creativity is expressed not only in our traditional attention to beauty and passion for food, but also in the cutting edge technological solutions. The overall theme summarized in the titles Tool for After points in a positive direction the tools to face the great new challenges ahead of us. Let me conclude with sharing a personal memory. One of my mentors once told me, remember Hannah, never fight the scenario. I think he's right. Problems can be turned into solutions, backwardness can be turned into progress. In short, every crisis carries opportunities. Thank you for your attention and enjoy the exhibition. Thank you so much. Thank you for those incredibly inspiring words. Now I'd like and that is the end of Solidarity Breakfast this morning. So I took you down to uh, uh, the RMIT strike action, which was on Wednesday. Uh, I spoke to filmmaker and protagonist in the film, uh, Our Voice, Our Heart, which is premiering at the uh, Darwin International Film Festival tomorrow. Uh, it will make its way down here. This is the week that was uh, and uh, followed that with um, uh, the opening night of uh, Tools for After. If you want more information about Tools for After, www.toolsforafter.info because, of course, it goes for the next six weeks. Uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents and I thought we might go out with Bridie King, Make Room. But I know I'll see it soon It's been a long time since I've seen your face But I know I'll see it soon It's been a long time since I've seen your face But I know I'll see it soon Tell everybody out there I'm coming Make some room Oh, won't you help me But I know I'll see it soon It's been a long time since I've seen you smile 
But I know I'll see you soon It's been a long time since I've seen you smile But I know I'll see you soon Tell everybody up there I'm coming Make some room Oh, won't you help me I know I'll hear it soon Tell everybody up there I'm coming Make some room Oh, won't you help me listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.